listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning this morning. I just want to give a huge uh, expression of gratitude to our worship team, just really helping us kind of set the stage and, and allowing our hearts to be malleable uh, to the truth of God's Word as the truth comes forward in the context of His Word. And as we've said before, we've, we're jumping into Romans 9 because we've been walking through the book of Romans together as a faith family. And the first eight chapters of Romans is one of those things that just continues to build on one another and really does provide this uplifting perspective of the truth of God's Word and the certainty of our relationship with Him, the, the joys of God's character, the, the hope that's generated from knowing the substance of God's active, pursuing, consistent, reliable love in our lives. And then you get this shift in Romans 9, and, and it comes um, to us, and, and it feels a bit jarring, at least it does to me, because what it does is I think it, it exposes some of the uh, challenging realities of how we respond to those who haven't responded, is kind of what it comes down to. And so I, Amanda prayed, and I so appreciate her prayer. I'm feeling the weight that I need to as well as we step into this text this morning, just, um, again, asking for uh, extra measures of grace because the last thing that we would want to do or that I would want to do would be to generate any confusion as we step into Romans 9, 14 through 18. And we're just dealing with a very significant and weighty context. I know that, that Jim last week said, okay, now let's address the elephant in the text. The problem with Romans 9, 10, and 11 is there are multiple elephants that are making huge herd throughout this entire text, trampling over all of these things. And so we want to be faithful with looking at the truth of God's word and allowing it to do what I think it really does, which elevates the character and the nature of God and continues to convince us that is reliable, even in the midst of the uncertainty that you and I feel in the midst of life and the challenges that we look at. So would you just pray, for, pray with me one more time? Father, we do surrender our hearts to you this morning. Um, we recognize that your truth is truth, that it does continue to remind us of your constant provision and care over our lives, that these words that are penned on the pages of Scripture are words that elevate our understanding of you, that draw us into deeper intimacy with you, that even convict areas of our heart that we need conviction. And so we stand here and, and literally we're pleading that, that you would work through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would illuminate the truth of your word in such a way that we would find ourselves so grateful and awestruck by your goodness and your grace. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for uh, allowing me to, to pray. As we, we jump in, I want to start with my life um, for a minute. December 24, 2020 was a challenging moment in my life. It was actually took place here in the church two hours before our Christmas Eve service. In room 104, I was with my dad and a hospice worker. We were signing paperwork because my mom had gotten 
really ill. She was in a memory care facility walking through Alzheimer's, which is just an insidious and destructive disease that had gone on for over a decade. And she had gotten sick and even had some touches of potential COVID. And there was just all of these things that had spiraled to a place where it didn't look like she was going to make it. They had done what they could. And so we sat there two hours before the Christmas Eve service signing paperwork for hospice care. She would be moved and she would not last long was the thought. And sure enough, that's what happened. Three days later on December 27th, she passed. Look back on those moments and I find myself uh, reeling with a lot of different emotions. I knew my mom. She's a She's a good woman. She did a lot of great things in the context of her life. She was a nurse. She worked hard. She cared for people, and she cared for our family. She was consistent, kind of a a tomboy. She grew up in a home where her dad actually worked for the Manhattan Project as they were mining uranium to work to figure out how to develop the first atom bomb. He was an engineer and grew up on a Navajo reservation, and she had a a brother who had a lot of different uh, issues, and she also had another younger brother who had Down syndrome, and towards the later stages of her life, he was part of an individual that we cared for as part of our family. He was in a group home, but he was always involved in our lives and all of the big holidays, and so there's just an intentionality and a heart of service in my mom. As a nurse, she cared deeply about people and really enjoyed being involved in their life. It was hard to think about signing that paperwork knowing that her life was coming to an end. And it's not that I was at all surprised that our lives come to an end. It wasn't the hardest part for me even remotely. The hardest part for me in that moment was that I had no guarantee that she had saving faith in Christ. I didn't know. And to this day, I still don't. There's a component where there's a wondering and a concern of, Did I share enough? Did she know? If Romans 8 is true and the goodness of God's character and all of his assuring love for people, and and she knew that, why, why wouldn't she have believed? That's the space that God takes us into in Romans 9, 14 through 18. It's the underbelly of the challenges that we face as we wrestle with the character of God. Last week, the question that was surfaced in the first 13 verses is, is God faithful? All of the nation of Israel had been given the promises and the covenants and the goodness of God had been revealed to them. They had heard stories throughout the chronicness and the longevity of their life of the goodness of God and the parting of the Red Sea and God saving his people. All of these things were evident in the rhythm of God's work in the nation of Israel. And yet, Paul feels like I felt, and still do. He tells us in the beginning of the text of Romans 9 that his emotions are one of anguish, unceasing sorrow in his heart. Why? There have been people that have been privileged to understand the goodness of God's grace and yet have rejected it. It's that place where we find ourselves wrestling with the most challenging questions of life. Why do those we love who've been told of the gospel choose to walk away? 
Why are there individuals who grew up in the church that knew the blessings and the covenants and the joy of God's miraculous saving power and mercy provided for them in the context of their life and yet chose to rather pursue other things, diminish and disregard the choice and the joy of God's work in their life? The question that Paul asks is, why? It doesn't make sense. Those are the four questions. There are four questions in this text that we're walking through. Last week is, is God faithful? This week, in four short verses, the question that's asked is, is God righteous? Is he fair in how he conducts himself in the context of interactions with all of human creation? Ultimately, if I was honest, I think the fleshly part of my heart comes out as I wrestle with this text. And here's the fleshly part that I think Paul forces us to wrestle with. Here's what we say. If I was in your place, God, I would do it differently. <laughs> I don't feel like you're handling the things the way they should be handled. And so because of that, it doesn't seem like you're the righteous God you say that you are. And Paul wants to address that question, and he does so in, in very real and significant ways, but we cannot dismiss the weight of this text. Imagine for a moment that it, this is a dinner table conversation where there's a family sitting around the context of having a meal together, and they're beginning to ask the questions. You know, what about Samuel and Ruth and all of these loved ones that are a part of our family, you know, they, they've, they've had the same information that I've had. They've been told about the joy of who God is and, and aware of this invitation and, and this recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet somehow, in some way, they're blind to the goodness of God and believe that they're okay just because they've been in the part of the nation of Israel. Or if we fast-track it to our modern day, they feel okay because they've been in church their whole life. And yet it doesn't seem like they believe. How do we process the righteousness and fairness of God in the midst of those who have an understanding of the greatness and the vastness and the majesty of God and His character that can hear the words of Romans 8, that, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that there's this invitation, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Romans 9, 14 through 18 is the question of why are there some that don't? Why are your life and mine interacting and brushing up against a whole host of individuals that might have heard of the goodness of God and even like Jim talked about last week are aware of our own mercy story. We're, we're recognizing how great God has been and how much mercy he's dispensed on our life and we want to share that with others, and we do, and there are many that could just say, great story, I'm, I'm all set, and what Paul is saying is, we know what that means, should they never come to faith in Jesus Christ, their destiny will be one in which they will live apart from him forever, no one wants that, I don't desire that for my mom, but I live in this place of not knowing, how do I understand the righteousness of God and his mercy on my life. Why? Why is there certainty that I will find myself in eternity with the God of the universe should I die at any moment and he will welcome me into his kingdom and I can't wait for that day? 
And my kids and my family and those who know me and love me will have that assurance and could stand up in my funeral and say, man, God worked in his life, took him home. He's happier than he's ever been because he's finding himself worshiping the object of his affections and he is now in the presence of Christ. What joy is there to be able to confess that that's true? But then at my mom's funeral and many others that I've done throughout my life, that assurance wasn't there. What do we do with that? Well, we do Romans 9, 14 through 18. If you look with me real quick, and I know some of it is revisiting last time, so I forgot to give you the four questions. I'm sorry. Is God faithful was the first part. Is God's righteous is today. Is God just is next week. And is God gracious the final week? All of the primary aspects of God's character that we wrestle with when we look at a world that is consistently and utterly devolving in so many ways where there's so much confusion and distortion of truth, where there's a place of feeling like we're being assaulted with all of these things. And even today in our day and age, Christianity has such a negative connotation. Why are these things happening? What is God's character? How is he applying who he is in the midst of the society that continues to convince us that maybe God isn't faithful? Maybe God isn't righteous. Maybe God isn't just, and maybe God isn't gracious. Those are the challenges that Paul seeks to address because it's primarily the place that you and I live. It's those heart conversations where we find ourselves struggling with people that we know and love that don't know and love Jesus. But we know that if they turn and find faith in Jesus Christ, that they will be saved. So here's what Paul says. As we jump into Romans 9, verse 14, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice or unrighteousness on God's part? For he says to Moses, Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This text comes from the Old Testament, Exodus 33:19, And for familiar, here's the story. The nation of Israel had grown impatient. Moses had been gone too long. They felt like God was not responding to their prayers. And so because of that, they began to develop a golden calf, a place of worship where they went back to the very idolatry that God freed them from, and they began to worship this calf based on hoping that somehow in some way it would provide the very things that God had already promised to provide. God was angry with their sin. There was a recognition of their disruption of the truth of who God was, and Moses is on the mountain, and Moses is pleading on behalf of the nation of Israel, and here's what he's saying. God, you have been faithful to keep your promises. This is more about the nation, this is more about you than it is about the nation of Israel. It's about you being seen for who you are and your steadfast love and your consistency and taking care of the very things that you promised. Would you just, again, be merciful and gracious to the nation? And so what does God tell Moses? Because I know you, I will do what you ask, for I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is Paul saying here as he's pulling that text from Exodus and applying it to our lives and, and that dinner table conversation, how do I find hope and 
trust in the uncertainty of my mother's final eternal destination. Here's where I think Paul leads us. Everyone who asks for mercy receives it 100% of the time. Everyone who asks for mercy receives it 100% of the time. As we move into the conversation that he's going to lead us to about the issue with Pharaoh, we find ourselves recognizing that there's a challenge that we face. And, and so what I can say and where my hope lies is that, yes, God is faithful. Yes, God is righteous. He is righteous to me. He is righteous to my mom. He is good in those regards. And in the moments where I might be unaware of whether or not she ever confessed faith in Christ, he can supersede the Alzheimer's disease and communicate to her mercy where she could have professed faith in Jesus Christ and I not know. And if she had asked, 100% of the time, she would receive mercy. 100% of the time, everyone who asks for it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for there's a power of God and for salvation to all who believe. So there's this basket that Paul puts this conversation in and realizing it is not as though God is unrighteous in his work in the midst of people's lives as we live in this uncertainty, hoping that somehow those we love, those we know, even those around us that are uh, aggressively against the truth of the gospel or even apathetic to it, at any moment in anyone's life, should they turn and seek to find the mercy of God, it will be dispensed on them lavishly every single time. God will not withhold his mercy from anyone who asks. There's hope in that space, in knowing that God will give and does give lavishly and extravagantly compassion to those who he is working in and those who are asking to receive his mercy. And so we have these stories and the testimonies of our lives where there is absolutely, fundamentally no reason why you or I should ever have confessed belief in Jesus Christ. That we have a story and a mercy. We have look back on our lives and we would easily say to ourselves, look, there are so many things that I've done in my life, so many reasons in which there is not a, a way that I could have ever scripted it where God would have spoken into my life and drawn me to himself. I grew up in a non-Christian home. I've no reason why through the series of events that I would have ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't grow up going to church really. I didn't grow up as a part of my life. I didn't have it as something that was an absolute essence of what we were and who we were. Nothing was modeled to me in those ways. And yet, because God was rich in mercy, he saw fit to allow a series of events to work in such a way it drew me to a place where I came forward and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. If I remember that, I can remember that no matter how far people feel away at this moment or how many atrocities individuals have committed, no matter how many crimes against humanity and against God have been done by individuals, should anyone seek to come to a place where they would seek the mercy of God, they would find it. If they reached out, Romans 10 is going to move us to that very conversation that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, we will be saved. But the question remains, what about those who don't? John Lennon from the Beatles, <laughs> I think, asked the question, what would you do if I sang out a tune? 
you stand up and walk out on me? I think that's the question of if God doesn't measure up to the standards that we've placed on him and the ways in which we think about who he is and, and his character and it doesn't meet the paradigm that we have, are we willing to just throw it all away and miss the truth and the depth and the provision of God's character? Or are we willing just if somehow in some way we would tell God that we would do it better if we were in his place? What we end up missing is the reality of our own mercy story. We cannot be God, nor should we. There's a level of trust and satisfaction in knowing his constant care. And so the question that is faced is, is God righteous? You know, is, he, is there injustice in his part? And Paul says, by no means, because of verse 16. So that it depends on not human will or exertion, but on God. But on God what? How does, that, how does that text finish? Who has mercy? <laughs> it, it depends on the work of God and the characteristic that is going to come through as a theme in this entire next three chapters is God is merciful. God is merciful. God is merciful. He is working in your life and mine. He's working in the world in ways that obviously right now we would say it's so hard to see. And yet, the reliability of knowing that he is extending mercy is part of where we can find hope and satisfaction that he is working in ways beyond what we can think or feel. So what do we do in those moments? Your neighborhood, your friends, your family members, maybe even individuals here at this church now who've been a part of church for their entire life and yet been so consumed and consisted and so um, part of a predictable tradition and systems that maybe they've never really placed their faith in Jesus Christ. What do we do? How do we approach the most difficult individuals in this world? How do we have a view of humanity through the lenses of the mercy of God? I think this is what Paul tells us. We were never made to understand who was hardened or who has a hard heart. So we approach everyone as though they could one day cry out for mercy. Because that was your story and mine. <laughs> there was a time that our heart was hard. There was a time that we were resistant to the truth of the gospel for various different reasons. Yet, as God saw fit to work in our lives, we were even unaware of how depth, how the, the deep areas of our own hardness, how, how deep it went, how blind we were. And yet you look back on your story and mine, and what it does is it gives us this recognition that God worked despite, not on human will or exertion, but on the fact that God was merciful. And so because of that understanding that God is merciful, your responsibility and mine is to recognize that we have no idea where an individual is at, but what we do know is everyone, everywhere, every time is in need of the mercy of God, including you and me. Everyone, every time, everywhere is in deep need of the mercy of God, myself included. That's where we begin, that there's this recognition as we look back on our story, because here's the testimony of, remember, who's writing this book, Paul. Paul is writing this book. We know Paul's story, who was once Saul, and we know that at one point in time, before his experience with Christ on the Damascus Road, who was he? He was complicit at the stoning of Stephen. 
He was the primary persecutor of the church. If you would ask anyone who had faith in Jesus Christ at that moment, what they would have said of Paul, here's what they would have said. Not him, never. He is the worst of the worst. He is so hard and so militant against Christianity, there is no way he could ever be changed. He struck fear in the hearts of Christians. He was a murderer and a legalist. He was so convinced as of his Jewish heritage and the knowledge of who he was that he was just certain that the reason why he was so passionate about the destruction of the Christians was because he thought he was being faithful to the God who provided the covenant because he didn't know the Messiah. And yet, God worked in Paul's life. That's why he's in anguish. He looks at his own life and comes to this realization that there was nothing that led Paul to come to this place based on his own merit or his own ability. But God worked why to dispense his glory, to use Paul in ways. There are those in our lives at times, if we're honest, maybe because we've prayed for them for so long that we've written off as though it just might not ever happen. Maybe we're not dealing with those who are militant against Christianity. But I think in times we've found ourselves resigned to the fact that we're just not sure that those we love and those we care about will ever truly surrender their lives to Jesus. And yet, the thrust of this text is that there is, it just takes but one moment for the mercy of God to be revealed for someone to be saved. And so I think embedded in this text is a level of conviction and urgency. The conviction is, sometimes in my own heart, I don't care enough about the lost. Sometimes in my own heart, I am not as in anguish or concerned about those who don't know Jesus. I've been saved and I'm grateful for my salvation, but there's multitudes and billions of people on the face of this planet that don't know the saving mercy of Jesus. And I wonder why it doesn't bother me like it should. Because that's the one thing and the one thing alone that is the most significant part of our life is that we have a mercy story and there's a desire embedded in the gospel that, that we want others to experience that same mercy story as well. We were never made to be aware of who has their hearts hardened. So we approach everyone as though they could one day cry out for mercy. And so Paul moves to this example of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not the hero of any story, quite frankly. He's not the guy that's elevated as that dude makes good decisions. But we find ourselves using, Paul using him as an example. And here's what he says in the text. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. Well, that's a fun text, right? Because we, we look at the challenge and we look at those individuals and we say, okay, does that mean that there's this initiative role? This is the elephant in the text of God in planning and condemning this individual where they had no chance. There feels like there's an injustice on God's part. There's unrighteousness to have raised Pharaoh up. But if we look back at the Old Testament, we have to realize the pattern of how these things operated. Again, like Jim said last week, God stands outside of time. But as you look through the story of the Exodus and Pharaoh and all of the plagues, the first five plagues, 
it says in the text that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it wasn't until the sixth plague that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That you have this weird operation in the context of the human world where God is working in such a way that even those who perpetrators of evil are being used by God to display his glory, and that in the process of all of those things, it was an absolute recognition that God was at work and not somehow standing back and just letting the world be whatever it was, but he was operating in all of the unique details of, of society and the world as we know it to carry through on allowing individuals to understand the power and the potency of God. He used Pharaoh to communicate the power of his glory. Let's move it to a New Testament example. Could we say the same thing about Judas? That moment of somebody being on the inner circle, having communion, the Lord's Supper with Jesus, Jesus knowing the betrayal, having someone have their feet washed by the Savior of the world, and yet realizing that Judas had sold his desire to be a part of a, a walk with Christ for a few shekels of silver, and yet in the process of those things, it was the very actions of Judas that led Jesus to the cross, that allowed the salvation of the world to be known. It's hard to imagine how this works. And so let me give you an example, and this isn't unique with me, but Dr. D. James Kennedy shares it this way. He says, imagine you had five friends, and five friends come to your uh, uh, house, and here's what they tell you. They have a desire and a plan to rob a bank. You stand there and plead with them to say not to ruin their life. Don't do this. Do not waste your life in being willing to throw it all on the line and, and rob this bank. And they're so convinced that they're going to do it. You give them all the reasons why. You tell them not to do it. You say that there's hope. Don't go down this path. Don't do it. And they begin to rush out. You run after all of them and you tackle one of them and you restrain them and you hold them down. But the four still decide to go and rob this bank. They shoot a guard and they end up getting caught and convicted. Life in prison. You look at that individual, you look at the four, and would they be able to blame you for the decisions that they made? Would they be able to say, hey, how come you didn't stop us? Why is it your fault? And at the same time, the one person that was restrained could never look at themselves and say, look what I did. I'm glad I didn't go. I made such a great decision. No, it was because you restrained that friend and their life was not ruined. Dr. James Kennedy says that that's kind of how he pictures this text, and here's his application. Those who end up in hell have no one to blame but themselves, but those who reside in heaven have no one to praise but Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way, the gates of hell are first locked from the inside. That there's a recognition in a sense that every single one of us is on our way to ruining our lives, doing what we want to do, and God is in the process of rescuing individuals, and he's telling us from the very beginning of this text that anyone who cries out for the mercy of Christ receives it 100% of the time. 
but in the midst of hardness and a society that is bent on destroying the truth of God's word and distorting the value of who Christ is, there are those that have been so deceived and are somehow doing things that are completely contrary to the scope of God's work, but that doesn't mean that God is off his throne. It doesn't mean he's not using it and working it in tremendous ways. Here's what we don't know, that even those who are committing the most atrocious of crimes, i.e. Pharaoh, we don't know who the Pharaohs are or who the Pauls are. What we do know is that everyone needs to hear about the mercy of Jesus. Do we see how this text begins to compel us in that direction, that that our view of humanity is shaped by the reality of the view of ourselves? And that view of ourselves is this. There is absolutely nothing that merited God's God's favor and grace in us. See how I combine those? Really good at that stuff. How God's favor and grace had worked in our lives. I'm rescued solely by the mercy of God, and all I can do is praise Jesus. But I do know that as I interact with the world, there are going to be those in the world that are so absolutely bent on destroying the truth of who God is. They're going to be antagonistic and adversarial to the reality of who God is. They don't even want the name of Christianity to be uttered in their presence. But yet, God can show mercy to them. That as long as you or I draw breath, the one thing that we would want our lives marked by is that we could be those who would testify that God saves sin-sick sinners, that our story of mercy is the story of God's grace. So let me suggest to you that those who've never received mercy never have a reason, those who have received mercy never have a reason for pride, only a reason to praise. We don't stand as though, and even in this text, as those who figured it out, what we do say is, There is a righteousness of God and a goodness that there will never be someone who is living uh, eternally apart from God that will be able to cry that God was unfair. That our sin and our selfishness always leads us away from God. And in the midst of that hearting, in the midst of that condemnation, Romans 8, 1, which we memorize together, is the central element. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God is not interacting with you and me of those who receive mercy from the standpoint of condemnation, but we are compelled to realize that there are those in our midst and in our lives that are living condemned by God because they don't know Jesus. Jesus is their only hope. And so the message of this text, the challenge of this These four verses are to be compelled with the reality of how deeply we've been saved and what we've been rescued from, how undeserving we are to receive the mercy of God and to realize that every time we interact with the world where sin and hardness has manifest itself in our presence, it does two things. It compels us to pray that the mercy of God will be revealed to them and that will be the source of change and it compels us to share. Hey, there's a mercy story that God can do in your life. And maybe we don't say it that way because that sounds a little bit too Christianese, but we do say, look, there's a sense in which God has something for you and somehow in some way I'm in your life, I'm on your radar, and I would just want to tell you of the love and the compassion that God has for you. Sounds like you've been hurt by a lot of things. I know a God who fixes brokenness. I know a God who changes lives. I know a God who has shown me a mercy I didn't deserve. And so that's where we live. 
in that dinner table conversation. Is there hope for me? Is there hope for my mom with my uncertainty about where she would be spending her eternity? There is. And that hope is that God is always righteous. He is always faithful. He's always good. And he dispenses mercy on all who ask 100% of the time. Would you pray with me? Father, we do need you to do what we are aware that we can't. We look at the sickness that has embedded itself in this world or just the constant destruction and confusion and distortion of truth that is part of our everyday life. And it's so hard to know how to encounter that or engage that. And yet, Lord, as we enter into Romans 9, here's what we do know. Pressing in to our relationship with you and realizing that we are people who are in daily, moment-by-moment need of mercy. Would you grow in us a passion and compassion for those who we know have not yet experienced the mercy of God? Lord, this is not about us becoming uh, something or making sure that we get more people in the church. It's about you building your kingdom and about people coming to faith in Christ and trusting that you will dispense mercy on them 100% of the time. So for those who aren't asking for mercy, we ask for them. God, would you touch the lives of those who are in our lives that have no desire for you whatsoever? Would you show them your goodness? Would they experience your compassion? And God, would you save them from themselves? God, would you do what only you can do? Change human hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand up to your feet?